grace, mercy, and peace to you in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your absolute most favorite part about church? Now, some of you might be saying, uh, Pastor, I'm not, I've never been to this church before. I'm not even sure about this church. I'm not even sure about Christianity. How come you're asking me what my favorite part is? Well, let me put it to you this way. Out of all of the things that you think about, why you come to church, why you go to church, why you're here today, what is your most favorite part? Maybe for some of you, it is the fact that what is preached and what is taught here seems to make sense to you. It resonates with you. It seems to be what you believe. Maybe for some of you, it's the music. You like how the music sounds, or maybe you like the style of preaching. Maybe for some, it's as simple as it's a close drive and the church is near my home. Maybe for some of you, it's the people here, uh, the friends, the fellowship, the community that we have here at The Way. Maybe for some of you, it's as simple as, I think these are the world's most comfortable church chairs I've ever sat in before. But whatever it is, whatever your reason, whatever your most favorite thing about church is, I want you to do this. If you're following along on the sermon guide, which is on page 10 of your worship guide today, I want you to take 30 seconds and write it down. What is your most favorite part about church? All right, I left my watch at home, but I think that's pretty close to 30 seconds. So hopefully you got something down. Now, I want you to imagine this. What if when you go home after church today, you go to your room or go to a quiet place, and just like you do always after church while someone's making supper, you sit down. I know you all do this. You sit down with your prayer journal, and you write down your favorite parts about church, the favorite things that you talked about with your friends, the favorite things that pastor preached about, your favorite verse from church today, and your prayer things, you're thinking these things, you're giving thanks for the opportunity to worship. And imagine if God were to come to you. He were to come to you in a vision and he were to say, hey, your favorite thing about church, you know uh, the guitars today? No more. I want you to smash guitars. No more guitars in church today. Could you do it? Or what if God came to you and said, oh, the, the proximity, uh, the fact that you like church because it, uh, it allows you to just roll out of bed in the morning, it's really close to your home, uh, I'm sending you to a church that is two hours away. Could you do it? What if God came to you and said, the preaching, I hear that is your favorite part about church. Well, I'm sending you to go tell pastor that no more of the preaching during the service. In fact, you're going to have coffee, donuts, and juice, and breakfast sandwiches during the middle of the church. Uh, preaching is going to take place Wednesdays at 7. Could you do it? Could you still like church as much as you did before? What if God came to you in a vision and he told you the people that you love, the community that you are a part of, no more. I want you to quit it. Quit hanging out with those people. Quit going to that church. I want you to find new people, new friends to be your church. Could you obey God? Could you do that? Would you say, no, God, no, never. That, that is what I love most about church. Well, as silly as that scenario might seem, that is exactly what happened to the Apostle Peter in our lesson for today. Well, sort of. You see, the Apostle Peter was suffering from a terrible case of favoritism. No, he wasn't showing favoritism to uh, other people it's necessarily. But during, during his ministry, he was suffering from the case of showing favoritism to certain groups of people. And it was affecting the way he reached out to other people with the gospel. And so God came to him and said to him, no more. 
Our lesson for today is from Acts chapter 10. And it starts out at the very beginning introducing a new person to us. A new person by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a man that Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us quite a bit about. Cornelius was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier that was in charge of a hundred other soldiers. He was an officer. If you compared him to the business world, he might be a CEO of a company with a hundred other employees in it. And he tells us much more. He tells us that this, this man was a God-fearer. Even though he was not an Israelite, he still worshipped and believed in the true God. He tells us that because of his faith, he was compassionate towards people who didn't have a lot. And he gave a lot to the community. Luke tells us also that this man was a prayer warrior. And every afternoon and every morning, he set aside time to pray, to go before his Lord in prayer and worship him. And that's where we pick it up today, where Cornelius is spending time with his God in prayer and a vision actually came to Cornelius. Here's what God said. He said, Cornelius. Cornelius started at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, Send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Oh, and the faith of Cornelius is remarkable. He doesn't question who's talking to him. He doesn't question what God told him to do. But immediately, he finds two servants and a trusted soldier, and he sends men off to go get Peter. And would you just look at the timing of this? It was about noon. The following day, as they, those same men, were on their journey and approaching the city that Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice came to him, told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stop by at the gate. As Americans who love their bacon and who love their Chick-fil-A, it might be rather hard for us to understand what is going on with this vision. Why did God have to come in a vision and say to Peter, it is okay for you to eat pork. It is okay for you to eat chicken wings. Did Peter just really not like that? Was he really just a picky eater? No. What you have to understand was that Peter was an Israelite. Peter was a Jew. And for as long as his people could remember, all the way back to the Old Testament, when they were wandering around in the desert, God gave specific commands, specific laws to the people of Israel not to eat certain foods. Why did he do this? Well, God did this to keep his people separate from unbelieving nations, to set them apart as his chosen people. But God did not ordain or command what came after that. 
by this time in Israelites' development, in Israelites' history, not only did they take it to mean that the food that they ate was unclean, but also they believed that those people who did eat it, those Gentile nations, those other people, they were unclean. They were degenerates. They were filthy. And if we spent time with them, no, then we would risk becoming unclean. So this was a big deal to Peter. And in true Peter fashion, it was not once, not twice, but it was three times that God had to say, no, eat this. It is okay to eat this food. Because what God was commanding Peter was something that would have really, really shaken him. His entire life, his mom, his dad, his rabbi growing up would have told him, do not go into the home of a Gentile. Oh, sure, you might rub shoulders and bump into them in the marketplace, but do not go into their home. Do not associate with them. Do not be their friends. Do not join a meal with them together, or you will be unclean. So it starts to make sense why Peter so vehemently opposed what has happened. And if you've ever woken up from a, from a deep sleep or a, or a crazy dream, you can kind of relate to Peter. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. It starts to click. Peter's starting to put two and two together, that the vision that God sent, what it meant, the significant that it meant, that the dividing wall between Jews, between Israelites and other nations had come down. If they could eat the food that was now cleaned by God's decree, what did that mean by other people? And there are men at my door, Gentiles, and God, the Holy Spirit, sent them to me? Meantime, during this, Cornelius was expecting Peter to come with him. And so he decides to have a little gathering. But of course, uh, a man who is well-respected among Jews and Gentiles, who is overseeing a group of 100 men, no, this is no small gathering. No, Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And I don't think that we can understand the tension that Peter would have felt. Standing in the doorway, he would have seen the, uh, the pig on the, on the spit in the backyard. He would have seen those bacon-wrapped goodies on the tables and the chicken wings. And he would have been very, very nervous with this gathering. No, it wasn't just the food, but he would have recognized the people. Their faces didn't really look like his. And he was told to go here. He was commanded to go here. And he was nervous about it. And you can sense the tension in his first words to his people to the people at the house, he said to them, uh, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or, or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I, I shouldn't call anyone, un, Im, anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Uh, may I ask why you sent for me? Oh, sure, Peter, you didn't raise any objection. It was three times. The Holy Spirit had to tell you to go, to do it. But nonetheless, he's here. I just love the faith of the centurion. He understands the tension. He understands that it is not normal that Jews and Gentiles were eating together. And so he recounts for Peter and for the other Jews that were there what had happened. And he says this. He says, now we are all here. 
in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. He says, Pete, I get that this is tense. I get that it's not normal. But guess what? It's God that has brought us here together. It's God that planned this all out, and now we're here. So tell us, what do God's word have to say? And it's in this remarkable moment of a remarkable demonstration of faith by the centurion that Peter realizes something profound and says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I now realize. See, what Peter is admitting, that there was a time before this moment where he actually believed that God saw people differently, that God favored some over and against others, that God favored Israelites and their faith over against anybody else that might have faith. Before this epic-making and momentous moment in the church where God drastically directed what would happen to his church, who would build it, who would be a part of it before this time, well, Peter had a problem with favoritism. Let's be honest, there's a problem with racism. And Peter didn't even notice. He didn't even realize it. Can I tell you all a somewhat embarrassing story. So it actually happened the day before I met all of you. Uh, two summers ago, when my wife Emily and I moved out here to look for housing, uh, we first flew out here, and we got into Reagan late at night, about 10.30, and because of maybe the fact that our rental car was parked in spot F32, or maybe just because they were tired, the Avis guys said, hey, uh, here, this, uh, this car that you uh, paid for and are renting, just take this one right here. So we're pumped, right? We're pumped because, you know, it's the little things in life, right? We got the upgrade, and we're also, we're in Virginia. We're going to our new home in Fredericksburg, and so we pull out. And as we are merging on to 95, my wife Emily looks out, and she goes, Matt, there's the Pentagon. And I'm trying to play it cool. I said, Emily, we live here now. But really, the reason I didn't turn my head to look is because I was freaking out. I was freaking out because I was trying to merge into quite a bit of traffic at 11 o'clock at night on that turn lane that comes up from George Washington Memorial on to 395. And because there was clothes hanging and because um, of some other embarrassing reasons, I could not see out of my back. And so I merged because I thought it was safe. And just as I did, a loud honk came by and a man gave me, I think it's the international symbol for, hey man, you almost hit me. And I could have avoided this precisely because all it would have taken was me to adjust my mirrors. But in the excitement of being here in Virginia, of going to where our new home was going to be, I didn't do that when I got into the new rental car. I didn't even look at my blind spots. And here's the point. We're a lot like Peter. All of us have favoritism. All of us have things that we prefer, things that we like, and perhaps a whole lot like Peter, we don't even realize it. We have blind spots, and we don't even know it because we're driving, merging in and out of traffic, and because we haven't adjusted our mirrors, adjusted where we're looking, well, we don't even notice it. I mean, think about it. Every culture, every community, every individual, and even every church has a culture, and we have cultural biases. 
I mean, think about even the way that people are valued in a rural setting versus an urban setting. People in a rural setting are more valued by what they do with their hands, what they, what they do for work, how hard they're able to work. Well, that's not the case in an urban setting. In an urban setting, people are valued perhaps more by what they accomplish personally, in their personal lives, or in their career. I mean, even think about style and dress. What's casual in the Pacific Northwest is not necessarily considered casual in the South, and what's considered casual in the South isn't the same as what's considered casual maybe in the Northeast. Now, as Christians, or as people, all of us have cultural biases that shape the way we think about style, think about music, think about time, think about family. And we have that cultural baggage in our arms and we don't drop it when we come into church. But when we step into church, all of us are carrying with it. And these silent and often unrecognized powers have a profound impact on the way that we look at the programs that a church offers, the plans that a church makes, the expectations that a church has of its pastor, and also the way we look at people. No, it's not necessarily wrong or bad or sinful that, that people have cultural biases because that's who we are. That's where, we're, that's where we came from. It is not a new phenomenon to show favoritism according to your gender, according to your family or where you're from or the team that you like or the way that you cut your hair. But the issue comes in when these favorite things trump what God's things are. The issue comes in when faces become more important than faiths. The issue comes in when we're driving around without checking our blind spots or checking what God's word has to say about things like sharing the gospel to all nations, even the nations that are here in our community. It's an important conversation to have. In 2017, where terms are being discussed like Nazism and white supremacy because of events that happened just miles from this place, we should really talk about this. In a day and age where a demonstration over or against, rather, social and racial inequality is taking place that has drawn the attention of our president, our fans, that's taking place in our country, in a heated way, we should talk about this. In a time where the news cycle seems to kick out a story of violence, whether it's mass or singularly focused, and the debate is about whether or not it was racially motivated, we should talk. We should have a conversation about what it means for us to be a mission church, for what it means for us to be a great commission church, to be a gospel to all nations church. You see, because it's the problem of favoritism or even racism is not necessarily about a few big bad racist or favoritists that we can point out. No, the issue might not be that people are opposed to different ethnic groups or opposed to diversity, but the issue might be as simple as the fact that we don't pay any attention to it. We don't really think about it. We don't check our blind spots. 
you're following along on the sermon guide, that's our first fill in the blank for today, is that culture creates blind spots. And these are something that we need to pay attention to. You think about this. You think about the, the 13 families that helped start the Way Church, the 13 families that are a part of the launch team that got this church up and going. Ask yourself, do those families necessarily accurately represent the community, the diverse community of Fredericksburg, Stafford, and Spotsylvania? No. Most of our families are from the same part of the country. Most of our families have been a part of the same Lutheran theological tradition most of our lives. And that in itself, it has an effect. Take a look. The Pew Research uh, Group did a study on how diverse different religious groups are. Take a look. In the middle is a representation in the red box of what all U.S. Po adult population looks like. Above it are the five most ethnically or racially diverse religions. And below it are the six least diverse. Now our specific denomination, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, is not listed up there. We're not quite big enough, but we are the third largest Lutheran organization right behind the two that are listed. And we are closely related to them, traditionally, historically, and culturally. And we find ourselves having an issue. Having an issue not necessarily that the church or the church body is opposed to different cultures, but maybe it's something that we just haven't paid any attention to. You know, like I said, it's natural. It's normal for people to find themselves around others that are like them, that share the same culture. It's easy. It's comfortable, right? But ask yourself, is it necessarily the best thing? Is it the best thing for the church? Is it the best thing for sharing the gospel? Is it really the best thing for you personally? Because you think about this. All of us have cultural blind spots. Culture creates blind spots. And if those blind spots go unchecked, another name for them is sin. Whether you're St. Peter, a Jew, or yourself, all of us have a sinful nature, and if we leave that sinful nature alone, what happens is that we retreat. We retreat into our cultural proclivities, our cultural preferences, and our favoritism, and what we do is we start to paint a picture, a picture of what the ideal Christian or the ideal believer looks like. And inevitably, it looks like you. It looks like me. And whether that picture is painted because of race, whether it's painted because of gender or political views, whether that picture is painted because of the way you parent or where you send your kids to school or how much money you make or maybe a combination of all of these things, we do this because we love to play favorites. Just like a multi-child family that asks their parents, you know, who's the favorite child, we play that same game on a massive scale with all of God's children. We want to know who's the favorite. And we know it can't be us by ourselves. And so what we do is we categorize and compare. We say that people that are like us, 
that fits this way of thinking, this way of acting, this way of doing, this way of dressing, this way of talking. Well, these must be the right way to worship. These must be the people accepted by God. But you think about that way of thinking about faces. And what does that do to our faith? It makes our faith, our righteousness, or our right standing before God, not based on done in Christ, but on what we do, on the things that we do. And because of that, our salvation becomes self-righteousness. Now, Peter's words need to be our words too. Peter had a realization. He said, I now realize that God does not show favoritism. Here's what he said. He said, I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the ones who fear him and does what is right. You see, our God is not someone who sees faces. He is not someone who shows favoritism. In fact, in the Old Testament, God speaking himself said, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he accepts people from every nation, from every tribe, from every people. And it's not based on your traditions. It's not based on your haircut, your customs, the way you dress, the way you talk. It's based on one thing alone. It's based on your faith. It's based on your heart, on what's inside. That's why Peter said he accepts people who do right. He accepts people who fear God. Take a look at this picture. Tell me what you see. Because we've been talking about it, you say two eggs, right? Let's be honest, they're two very different eggs. There is a brown egg and a white egg. But what would you see if you cracked those open? You'd see the exact same thing. And that's what our God does to us. He takes sinful people and he cracks us open and he shows us it is the same. Inside all of you, it is the same. What I care about is what's inside, not on what's on the outside. And it gets even better than that. Peter goes on to say, you know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The good news of peace. That's what God sent to the world. Peace. And yet peace is is what people search for, it's what people fight for, it's what people think about, what write about, it's what they talk about because we're constantly looking for it. I mean, who doesn't want peace between nations, between powers and peoples and in communities and in our homes? And yet peace can't be found. Peace will never be found in its totality here on earth. Why? Because there's something in us that remains. It's sin. It's that sinful nature that constantly shows favoritism towards faces and doesn't think about faith. And so God brought peace. In fact, he sent someone to bring peace, and the only person who could bring peace was the Prince of Peace. It was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who had nothing in common with you and yet came to live with common man. It was Jesus Christ who in no way could relate to us and who in no way was like us and yet he came to live with us and be by us. And in so doing, he was misunderstood. He was rejected. 
He was discriminated against, and ultimately, he was put to death. But he did it. Why? The prophets tell us so that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus, who in no way is like you, came to be just like you, so that he could wrap his arms around you with his unending, undeserved, and undeniable love, his reckless love, that came and really crossed the tracks and reconciled two sides that couldn't get along, us and God, God who is perfect and us who are anything but, Christ crossed the tracks and reconciled a relationship together. And in doing so, God gave him the name that is above every name. He named him the Prince of Peace. He named him the Lord of all. And do you understand what that name means? The fact that he is Lord of all means that the good news that was originally sent to the people of Israel is now for men like Cornelius and us. Peter goes on to say, you know what has happened through the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. Christ came and he brought peace. But this peace, it was not a peace that he didn't have to fight for. It was a peace that he had to contend for each and every day of his ministry. Not just in his death, not just in his suffering, not just in his resurrection, but each and every day he fought against the power of the devil. The Greek word to describe the power of the devil there paints the picture of what people with um, superiority complexes do to people who seem less superior to them. It paints the picture of oppression. It paints the picture of putting someone down by their power. And what Christ did is he came and he broke that oppression and he gave people instead freedom. And now peace causes freedom for those who are oppressed. Peace causes freedom for us by replacing in us a power, a power different than the one that was there. Listen, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, I've been preaching. I've been interrupted by a couple things, maybe movie screens going on every once in a while. But one thing I've never been interrupted by is the Holy Spirit himself. But that's what happened while Peter preached. The Holy Spirit came and he verified that the words that he was saying were true. But more than that, he validated that forgiveness of sins and faith and peace was for Gentiles alike. It's a peace that makes a vertical relationship between us and God restored, but it is a peace that pours over into our hearts and into our lives and drastically changes our horizontal relationships as well. 
You see, the apostle Peter was the last person who wanted to go to Cornelius' house. He didn't go there on his own. It wasn't his idea. It was the Holy Spirit that led him to do it. And in the same way, it's the Holy Spirit in us that makes us live differently than this world, that makes us live differently with different people. And in closing, I want to think about just two ways that we can do that. We can live differently by embracing sacrifice. You think about your cultural preferences, things that you prefer, your favoritism. What do you like especially about church? You wrote it down before. And ask yourself, if we are going to bring the gospel to all nations, if all nations are going to be a part of this church, what things do I need to sacrifice? Do I need to give up? We need to embrace the idea of sacrifice and we need to be humble. Peter lived with the idea, with the thinking of ethnocentricity. His whole life, he thought him and his fellow Jews were better than the Gentiles. What needs to change for us? To put away our egos, to put away our snobbery, our pride, and really follow, listen, and learn from people that are different from us. What it will take is the gospel. The message of the gospel, which changes hearts and changes lives. But listen, the message of the gospel, it won't change who you are. It won't change where you're from. It won't change the color of your skin. No, it it doesn't work like that. But the gospel does change the way we live and we act. Think about those two things. Embracing sacrifice. Being humble. You live like that and your face will start to look a lot like Christ shows no favoritism and who sees no faces. Amen.